listening to the New Century Multiverse, The Princess Thieves. Chapter 12, New Skills. Four days left. Oberon rose early and went to wander the ruins in the dawn light, his eyes surveying the ground. He saw a set of knuckle dusters that were too small for him lying on the stonework, the previous owner having dropped them during the scuffle the night before. The knuckle dusters went into Oberon's knapsack. He ventured further, relishing the clear, cold air of the place. His ribs, left thigh, right shoulder, and the fingers of his right hand still ached from the vicious brawl of the evening before. The cuts to his body were dressed and mending, but he would have to go easy on them. There were a few too many times where he had been overcome in the dark, and had to go to a place that would be overwhelming enough to his attackers to save him and his diminutive companion. It was a savage place and not one Oberon liked. But what disturbed him more was how naturally he could reach that state of mind, or indeed, mindlessness. A reliance on instinct and action over conscience. It haunted him. Near a bloodstain on the wall, he found a small discarded bag containing a few coppers and an unimpressively playing ring. Whoever the thug had been planning to propose to imminently may have to wait a while longer. The bag went into Oberon's bag. He hesitated over a discarded shoe. Dark brown leather, scuffed, with a buttoned flap that had been ripped open during the brawl. The shoe went into Oberon's bag. He chewed his lower lip with annoyance as he proceeded. Not all of their attackers had lived through the night. The dead were taken away by the living on firm instructions from Merlane, from the baleful tone of voice she had used with them and the tingling in Oberon's skin, he was well aware some magic was at play. As a result, Merlane now frightened him. Anybody with that level of power contained in such an unassuming frame was worthy of his respect, but seeing her work her will upon the knives, he became more acutely aware of the chessboard on which he now stood positioned. He had, knowing previously of her hidden identity and mythical significance, considered her to be the queen of this particular game, the piece who could move as she pleased, and the possessor of power well beyond the pawns she had sent fleeing in the small hours. But now, in the light of day, things were clearer. Oberon flattered himself that he may be a rook, but it was increasingly more apparent that she was the player moving the pieces. He stopped in at the horse. On the cobblestones in the middle of the stables, bathed in the sunlight pushing through the nearby glassless window frames, a dark-coated man lay dead. His hat was discarded some seventeen feet across the room. His head was at an obtuse angle. He had an inkling. The nag stepped from the shadows and approached the Arca. To rustle this particular horse in the dead of night. Did you kick him to death? I did. His intentions towards the rest of us were unsavory, so... 
Thank you. Nobody forces me to carry them. I had come to brush you down. I don't need it. You don't want it. Never did get that stew I was promised. We had kind of a busy night. And nobody came to check on me. I'm here now. And oh look. Oberon produced a flask from his knapsack. Leftovers. So that's what I'm to be given to dine on. Leftovers. Listen, I'm not going to tell any of the others I came to see you. So you can either eat this delicious cold stew I made and accept a brush down, or I can walk out of here and you can stay dirty and hungry. Either way, I'll remove the corpse from your living area. I will take you up on your offer. Brush away, but don't you look at me. Oberon began his attendance of the horse, smoothing down the rough, matted, and clumped coat with a pair of firm brushes that were too small for his great Arca hands and had to be delicately gripped between his fingertips. The nag contented himself with staring straight ahead. Each of them felt the warmth of the other as Oberon worked at the knots of tension in those mottled flanks. So... <clears throat> Uh, you doing anything this weekend? No talking. Fine by me. On that same early morning, Melen found Viola in the guest bedroom of her cluttered cottage, sorting through the provisions the little band would be taking back to London. Viola Hartstone. Listen, if this is about my behavior at supper... First of all, I've already sort of apologized to the Akka. Second of all, I think it's actually rather important to adopt a healthy sense of paranoia when one's position is a bodyguard. It's my job to expect the worst from people. Those in my position who give everyone the benefit of the doubt end up with dead charges. And you know, at the very least, two realms would be in turmoil if that happens. If, if, if she dies, or... Or if anything happens to her, I... I would have failed utterly in my intended task. So, if you're here to scold me about my prejudices, you can take your sermonizing elsewhere. Are you quite finished? That's all I have to say right now. I came to ask you about that magic you employed yesterday. None of that hit you, did it? No. I had a shield up the whole time. In fact... I believe you encountered my extension of that on the drawbridge. That was yours? That was my signature move. Yes. Well, can you teach me? They might come in handy the next time the princess is in danger. Which should be around tea time today. Sadly, no. That wasn't actually a spell. More of an ability I'm currently in possession of. So it's not something that can be taught. I... I do have a few other tricks up my sleeve, but I must confess that some of what you were flinging out eludes even me. Wherever did you learn that? Oh, I learned those a long time ago. My teacher's gone now, and you couldn't find her to hold her to account. The magics you wield are forbidden, child, but not by me. You needn't be so insufferably defensive. I'm hoping you, you fathom me here. What it's been like, spending half my life hiding what I can do. Knowing that if those men found out the truth, I would be shamed, excommunicated, 
banished, executed, my name would go down in history as a traitor to our race. Of course I fathom. You and I, our station is to stand quietly in the shadow of the powerful. The uncharitable or short-sighted might consider our actions manipulation. The wise would understand that with the vast movements taking place, our charges must not be granted the blessed benefit of being able to make catastrophic errors in judgment. We often see those outcomes in the road ahead and steer them away. Would that be accurate, Viola? The Dwart said nothing. Her voice caught in her throat as she stared at Malen. And it stands to reason that sometimes when a bright outcome, advantageous to many, presents itself, our charges may also need our gentle steering to guide them to that new road. That being said, I hope you will forgive the form I once used to steer you. In a flash, Merlin had transformed again to the woman Gwendolyn had referred to as Nanny M. You? Another flash, and Merlin had returned, nodding. That's some parlor trick. It's a glamour. Do you use deception often? Viola, I have one or another of these spells working every second my feet are in contact with this earth. I'll warrant that if you or anyone else could perceive my true form, I'd never be able to have an engaging adult conversation with them again. It's not deceit, it's... etiquette. Can you teach me those? As a matter of fact, I can. There then followed several hours of training montage that is difficult to represent outside of a visual medium. It began with nearly an hour of mistakes and bungled attempts. She made her own nose disappear, gave Merlin purple skin, and gave everybody enormous feet. But after these fiascos, Viola's skill in other spells resurfaced, and she began to get the hang of these subtle new arts. The thing about a glamour is that it's only really the final 10% of an illusion. The other 90% is down to the clothing and behavior of the person the spell is cast upon. If they are charging around screaming obscenities, and this is not the natural behavior of their target, they will be seen for who they are, not their intended disguise. So, if one were to say wear the face of Dame Judy Dench, but the clothes and behavior of Dame Edna Everidge, the glamour would only serve to confuse and draw further attention to you. Viola had to see it as more of a costume that an actor wears. The mind of the observer searches out faults in appearance and can reel and set off alarm bells when something is off. The spell, when cast correctly, muffles those bells, distracts with the everyday, rejects scrutiny like a cat held up to its reflection. Viola learned this over the day. The clothes and behavior had to fit the identity, and if those were in place and the face fit the rest of the body, the illusion, to the trained magic user, would be simple and subtle enough to keep operating in the background of their mind. It may necessitate only the attention required of, say, keeping the lyrics of a song playing constantly in one's head. With practice, it could become as natural as breathing, and the range away from the spellcaster could span great distances provided Viola could fix on a clear image of them. She succeeded in making Robin look like he was dark-haired with a brown coat and a full, bushy black beard, obscuring his features. She made Gwendolyn look like Lady Tilly, a friend of hers from court, but mainly because Gwen was good at affecting Tilly's mannerisms. Viola made herself look like Captain Baltus, but quickly switched back because being in his headspace was making her feel nauseated. Finally, 
she managed to make Oberyn look like a lumbering, ginormous human being, which quite took everyone aback considering the level of detail involved, not least of all Viola herself. It was well into the afternoon when she allowed them all to depart and prepare for their journey back. In the main courtyard, Robin was instructing Gwendolyn in how to comport herself on the streets of London in their new guises, utilising purloined clothing from the knives. This jacket smells of beer and sweat. Good, it has to make you somewhat repellent, but not so foul-smelling that people remember you. I'll never get this odour out of my skin. Well, you can have a luxurious bath when you get back. Hmm. Do you take baths? I mean, you smell lovely. I mean, you smell all right. I mean, most of the time. I mean, when we were in the trunk... Yes, yes, Princess, I take baths. Even the impoverished can muster hot water. Now tie your hair back and hide it under your collar. It's far too eye-catching to leave out on display. We need as few things as possible for Viola to have to hide. There. Now if I pull this cap all the way down, I look plain and ugly and boring. <sighs> nope, you're still radiant. Even if we grime your face up, your posture just makes you stand out. Um, show me how you walk. Do you mean at court, or to my horse, or greeting a dignitary, or addressing a crowd? I have six different walks, Master Hood. All of them perfected over years of hard practice. Just show me how you walk down a street. Well, I suppose it's not as similar to walking to one's carriage. Here. <gasps> she stepped with elegant strides, holding her head aloft. Okay, now you've been mugged. Won't you show me? Robin adopted a slower pace, slumped his shoulders and allowed his left-right movements to pull him into a natural lope that suggested resignation to defeat. <laughs> That's not how you walk, though. I've seen you. At this, she rushed in front of him and strode past, swaying her hips in a swagger, flashing him a grin as she sauntered past. You walk like you own the street, as though if someone were to stop you, they'd get either a joke or a fight or a kiss. That's when I want to attract attention to myself, when I want to charm someone or annoy them or intimidate them. Very much in control. It's the artful dodger, and you want to be thinking Oliver. Oliver whom? Oh, by Thrail Copperhelm, you're reading the wrong books. I read all sorts of wonderful books. Have you read Nicholas Nickleby? No. Have you read what Katie did? This isn't a competition. Have you read A Tale of Two Cities? I've read Frankenstein. That doesn't help us. We can't have you lurching around London like the monster. I can walk like Victor. Better, but he's still not your common everyday street urchin that the world chooses to ignore. Right. Well, I can try walking like Oberon. <sighs> Listen to me. The people of London, the ones we're going to be walking around, are not in control of their lives. They want to be, but they know they aren't. Your walk has to reflect that. You need, you need to feel like there's a weight pressing down on you, and a rope pulling you forward. It's like you keep moving so you don't collapse and die in the gutter. The ones with pride attract attention to themselves. We can't be that right now, so just do this. He loped again, kept his head down, kept his movements light, and adopted something of a scowl. Good lord, how do they find the energy to get out of bed in the morning? 
If they want to feed their families, they find the energy. Simple as that. So, no more swagger, not until you're back home. They paced past one another several more times until Gwen's demeanor was suitably lowered and her sachet had turned into a waddle. They stopped and stood beside the cart, Robin looking up into her face, Gwendolyn looking down into his. Robin's moustache twitched. Much better. It's as though you were born on the street. Thank you. Thank you. I've spent my life reshaping my behavior for the benefit of others. So I'm quite used to that sort of thing by now. Nearly all of my mind and body is on loan. And the rest of you? Gwen straightened up, her lip curling, as she studied the dwarf. That's a secret. Not many are allowed in there. Robin breathed deeply to find, unavoidably through the sweat and beer, that he had caught the scent of her hair. He took a step backward as he let out a sigh. (sighs) Wonderful. I think you're ready for the real London. Go find your bodyguard and we'll hit the road again. Gwendolyn frowned and turned on her heel, walking with that accomplished state of defeat as she sought out her nursemaid, me. Robin winced, turned, and chewed the wooden side of the cart as a tall, slender figure emerged from the shadows and approached him. You have been listening to The Princess Thieves, Written, edited, and produced by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. The performers for this episode were Oberon, performed by Matt Wardle The Nag, performed by Spencer Lieb Viola, performed by Loretta Saylor Old Meg, performed by Maureen Foley Princess Gwendolyn, performed by Theo Lee Robin, performed by Alex Shaw Mortimer, performed by Sharon Shaw the Princess Thieves theme was Arrival by I. Sazanov of Shockwave Sound. Miri's Magic Dance, Arcade Chade, Perspectives, Dirt Road, Terminal, Plaint, and Angevin, composed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. A big thank you to Psycho Pez for your iTunes review. It is fantastic to be ranked alongside Big Studio Audio Fair. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helasharju, 
Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And this week, as well as starting off something really cool and fun and visual to accompany the wonderful Antonio Torrison's artwork, which you're going to see on the Patreon in the next few weeks, I started mapping out the story for Steamheart. <laughs> 